Creation Science Fellowship is giving a door prize, and I'm assuming at the last question and answer time frame, if you haven't filled out a form, then there's no way you're going to win. We ready to start? Good. Just a quick, just for my benefit, uh, how many of you were not at the first session? Just, uh, okay, about third of you. Well, everything that we're going to do in this session, you're gonna, not going to have a clue. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> Let me just quick review. What we did last hour is I gave the first part of, obviously, two parts here. We stressed the evidence that Scripture gives us that uh, the earth is relatively young. We concentrated on Genesis 1 dealt, I hope, in enough detail with the days of creation and why we should take them literally. So we spent most of that time dealing with that, the, the uh, biblical or scriptural evidence for a relatively young earth. Because there's a biblical chronology. We outlined a little bit of that. We're in a, another, well, I started off by giving a lot of compromise views and at the beginning, I mentioned that what I'm presenting to you is by far the minority view. By far the minority view, not only in the world, but by far the minority view within evangelical Christianity. Minority view. Most of even conservatives believe in an earth of billions of years and a universe of billions of years. I'm giving the alternative to that. And what drives, I'll give you my assumption up front. In fact, we'll go over a little of this in a moment here. I start with Scripture because God is Creator, and if He is Creator, then He's not going to reveal something in His Word that's going to go contrary to what you can discover by studying the creation. That's what science does. And there is, I think, an overwhelming correlation between what you can study in science and what you can study in the Bible. Now, there's alternative theories, and I gave some reasons for those as well. Mainly because man has to come up with an alternative explanation concerning creation because he doesn't want to stand before God because it makes him accountable. And similarly, he, does, he denies the Genesis flood that it ever existed and claims that there's no evidence, even though yesterday I tried to demonstrate there's overwhelming evidence. But the flood is a judgment, and man does not want to face God as judge. God is creator, and God is judge, so he has to come up with alternative explanations. A third issue is this issue of the time frame. And again, men want to push... God as far away into the past as they can. So one way of doing that is time frame. What we ended the last hour, we got about 15 minutes into it, was the problem of compromising scriptures. I call that accommodation. And let's see, that's not on this second outline sheet. We ran out of outline sheets, but I'm still on that first outline sheet that was passed out. Okay, for, 
Yeah, I think we still have. Okay, you made some. Did everybody get the outline that was passed out just now? That's for after I complete this portion. So he's going to get the other outline for you. So we were in the middle of the discussion of what you have to do to get around the biblical or the scriptural evidence. And I call that accommodate the text, accommodation. And the thing that we ended on was you have to compromise your hermeneutics. In other words, the principles that you use to interpret scripture. You have to compromise that. And I ended with a discussion of one way of compromising is that you describe Genesis 1 as poetic. But the literature is clearly narrative, another genre of scripture called narrative. And I would add historical narrative. Everything in Genesis 1, in fact, everything in Genesis is historical narrative. So you have to compromise with that idea, and some compromise by calling it poetic. Narrative is the presentation of history or events in story form. Now, broader, in a broad sense, narrative could include uh, novels, which is not history, but that the Bible is not a novel either. The Bible is historical narrative. And clearly so, I think, in Genesis. There's no difference from Genesis uh, 1 and 2 or even the early chapters of Genesis. Most even theologians will acknowledge that beginning with chapter 12, you have Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph. That's historical narrative. Nobody contests that. There's not any significant difference with the first 11 chapters. So it's historical narrative. Gives the reader a sense of being there. That's what narrative does. And I'm going to skip over this because I'm already past where I wanted to get. But these are some of the elements, and you find that. The author will give us a setting. He'll give us characters. In this case, God is the only character until we come to man. And there is a plot. There is a story that is told here. It's a story of creation. And chapter 2 continues that story. And what they generally, I alluded to this earlier, uh, they might, try to make these parallels and kind of stretch this idea of this parallelism and think, well, this is evidence for poetry. No, it's not. Uh, I think what it's doing is it's describing, in a very uh, elegant way, God's creative work. In verse 2, it says, the earth was without form, tohu, and... Void or empty, tohu vabohu are the Hebrew words. And what appears that God is doing is he is giving form to what he begins with. In other words, he is creator, but he chose, and I gave you the reasons why he created in six days, last hour. He could have done it instantaneously. He could say it like he does on day one. Of what reasons? Okay, reason he created, he could have said, let there be a universe, and there would be a universe, just like he said on day one, let there be light, and there was light. The reason he created in six days, one reason, 
and perhaps the main reason is because of the fourth commandment. And we quoted where God, Moses records the very words that God inscribed in stone, that in six days God created, not eras. And we went through all of that. All right? He created in six days to set a pattern for the work week, and he rested on the seventh, not because he needed to, because he's self-existent and has no needs. He doesn't get tired. He did it as a pattern to establish the Sabbath, eventually inscribing it in law, Mosaic law. Okay, So uh, six days he gives form, creating water environments, basically land environments. And now he's filling the last four and even beginning, and the symmetry even breaks down because on day three, he's already beginning to fill the earth with plant life because you have plant life in the second part of day three. Okay? And then you have lights corresponding to lights. So they make a big deal of that. And I think it's just an elegant way of describing what God, what he did and what he reveals the way that he created. Well, let's go beyond that. Not only is your hermeneutics compromised and changed, but when you get into the biblical text and you do detailed what's called exegesis, this is just Bible study, kind of a sophisticated way word to describe Bible study, exegesis. Now, it's a technical term and it has some features, but when you study the details of the text, you have to really stretch the details to come up with anything different than what I summarized. And what I've done, I've read a few commentaries by old earth creationists. And I mentioned the most prominent one is Hugh Ross. He has a commentary on Genesis 1. And his exegesis of the text is atrocious. In fact, I came up with this slide after I read his commentary on Genesis 1. And this is what he does. In other words, this is my summary of what he has to do to come up with his interpretation. He's accommodating the text. And he is typical of what you will read in those commentaries that take a long er or an old earth viewpoint. He will most certainly emphasize the details in the text that support his accommodation very clearly, very strongly. All right? Secondly, he is superimposing current scientific theories on the biblical text. In other words, he's taking something outside of the text, um, injecting it into the text. That Remember, what's the fundamental hermeneutical principle that I gave you last hour? Those of you that are there? Well, context, but... Uh, the author's intended meaning. You have to kind of push that a little bit aside... Did Moses really intend? Well, you have to inject, superimpose scientific theory in order, and that's the driver, the driver. Okay, that's the reason they do that. And very importantly, the third thing that I see is he reinterprets the text to fit those theories. And I'm going to give you an example of what he does. And fourthly, very important, they ignore the details that don't support, and there's lots of details in the text that don't support that interpretation. And this is pretty typical. 
And as I was reading, these things just kind of came to mind, so I wrote them down and came up with this slide, but that's essentially what he's accomplishing in summary. Uh, and I did that because it's somewhat representative of what you have to do to the text to be able to reinterpret it. Okay, here's an example. Hugh Ross, this is a statement out of his commentary. One of the problems is, that the text gives is we have the sun and the moon created on day four. That's totally out of sequence in terms of evolutionary, the time frame. Totally out of sequence. That's one of the major problems they have. Is, so this is how he solves that problem. And notice what he's doing. He's reinterpreting the text. On day four, the sun and the moon and the stars became distinctly visible. And if you keep reading, he tries to make the point that uh, obviously this, the sun and the moon and the stars had to have been created very early because that's the time frame. That's the long age time frame. So the stars became distinctly visible from, oops, what did I tell you the first hour? <laughs> there you go. <laughs> Not the Earth's surface. I'll have to go back. Uh, I've done this several times. <laughs> Interesting. Okay. Uh, visible from the Earth's surface for the first time. I, I gave a little bit of background in the first hour. Uh, English is not my specialty. <laughs> Clearly illustrated here. So uh, the, the sun and the moon became distinctly visible from Earth's surface for the first time on day four. And earlier in, in that same discussion, he's talking about the sun, obviously, and the moon were created on day one of his sequence. This is how he explains it. In other words, and he gives a lot of explanation as to why you couldn't see the sun, and now it kind of appears, that sort of thing. We won't go into that details. He sees verse 16 as parenthetical, the same place, so he has to reinterpret it because this makes clear, verse 16 kind of makes clear what God is doing there. And he says, verse 17 kind of echoes the wording of day one, so it makes sense. See what I'm saying? He's kind of manipulating the text is what he's doing. Well, there's some problems with that. Uh, the exegetical details that we're talking about here. We have what theologians call a divine fiat, just like we have on all the other days. And what we mean by fiat, in other words, a, cre a creative announcement. All right? Like day one, let there be light. There was light. You have the same structure, the same word, uh, type of wording in verse 14. So he's talking about creation. He's not talking about things as they appear. So that goes against it. We have the same immediacy of fulfillment. Let there be light, and there was light. And also, he talks about the creation of the great lights, and the great lights are there. You have immediacy of fulfillment. Uh, you have creation terms. You have creation terms in verse 16. He uses the Hebrew word asa. That word is used somewhat synonymously with bara, which is uh, to create. Uh, Moses uses both words, and he uses them somewhat interchangeably. And in this context, he uses asa. So he's using, that's the word. Now you can see it now that I pronounced it. In verse 16, had Moses intended to give the idea of something appearing, I don't have the 
text in front of me here. But if you read before, he could have used the word because when he describes the creation of the land masses, he talks about the land masses appearing, which may imply that when God created the earth, the, it included the land masses, but now they come to the surface of the waters. And he does that in, in day three when he talks about the land masses. He uses the word ra'ah, Hebrew word, to appear in verse nine. So he's already used the word appear. So he's not describing on day four the sun and the moon appearing now. He could have used this word in that context. See how you ignore the details. Got it? He uses asa. In other words, God made the lights. Creative terms. So when you get down to the details, the details just don't support it. So you have creation terms in 16. And not only that, but he goes to the extent to kind of expand on that creation. God actually places them in the heavens. Placement in verse 17. So uh, you don't have parenthetical statements. You have clear structure that is very similar to all the other creative days. Okay, that's just an example. So as a result, <laughs> and just to keep you awake here, the cartoon emphasizes that uh, the exegetical details are important. <laughs> right? Get the details wrong you end up with a wrong end product. All right. This is what happens. You have to pound a square scriptural passage into a round scientific theory. And what suffers? Scripture is always the casualty. It's always the one that uh, gets stretched and manipulated and reinterpreted and everything else. That's the problem with the old age view. And it's pretty consistent. So in interpreting scripture, it affects your hermeneutics. And it, once you get down into exegeting a text, it affects your exegesis as well. You have to change your process. But what little people, or what people don't re realize is when it comes to science, it also involves interpretation. There are two types of science that is done today. There's what's called observational science. Observational science is done in the present. You make observations in the present and you conduct an experiment. Somebody else can come after you, perform the same experiment after making the similar observations. That's observational science. You can apply science to things that took place in the past. We're talking about events that took place in the past, ancient past. In interpreting science, interpreting the data of the past, it involves interpretation of the data because events only took place once. They're not repeatable like an experiment that you can do in present time. Make sense? What you have today in science, overwhelmingly, this is secular science. This is why I go through that whole talk on the biblical foundation for science. It's different. It is not methodological naturalism. That is religion. Religion is imposed on the practice of science today, particularly when it deals with 
reconstructing historical events. What nat uh, methodological naturalism is, is that they limit the data that you can use to come to your conclusions. The data must be naturalistic. In other words, it has to deal with only the natural realm. It excludes other data like revelation. So it excludes the Bible. They would classify that as man's opinion, uh, religion. Uh, you can't have that because that's too subjective. So they have a, a distorted view of what the Bible gives us. I think the Bible gives us historical data. And I start with the Bible and world-class scientists that are believers, like Russ Humphreys and some others, uh, they start with Scripture because Scripture sets the parameters for your research. In general, that's not what's done in, in science. Methodological naturalism involves imposing naturalistic theory like evolution and uniformitarianism, two concepts that are imposed in the whole scientific endeavor today. Now, those conservative Christians that hold the old earth, I think they overlook this. This is a thing that they overlook, and they, they miss this point. Secondly, it attempt, then it attempts, those believers attempt to harmonize the text with that imposition of evolution or uniformitarianism. All of the scientific argument, and check this out, all of the scientific arguments that are used to give scientific evidence for an old earth imposes uniformitarianism. I'll explain that a little bit more if we have time. <laughs> a biblical approach or a biblical worldview to science begins with Scripture. If God is the creator, then you should expect from his creation nothing to contradict what he reveals in his word. And I have not found anything that does in the 30 or so years I've been doing creation science. Begin with scripture. You avoid evolutionary thinking. You avoid uniformitarian theory. And you interpret the physical data from that framework, from that worldview. See the difference? This is fundamental. This is the fundamental difference within the church and certainly outside of the church in the secular world. All right. We're observing the same data but it's an issue of interpreting the data to come to conclusions concerning the past. Because you can't go back. All right. Here's observational science, observations in the present, experiments in the present. There's historical science. And all you can deal with in historical science is deal with what are called the traces of the past. And by the way, this is applicable to any historical endeavor, not just scientific historical endeavors. All you have available for Abraham Lincoln are the traces left behind concerning the life of Abraham Lincoln. And that's true of any historical event. What is your best traces of the past? Any historians here? Or to summarize, yeah, that whole body, it's called documentary evidence. The whole area of, doc, in other words, eyewitness, documentary evidence, diaries, uh, letters, newspaper articles. We can reconstruct a lot of the life of Abraham Lincoln. 
based on those traces. What do you have available when you're looking at the geological record? You have the layers, but you don't have documentary evidence because it's excluded by naturalistic or methodological naturalism. And I say we need to include it because it gives us the parameters, it gives us the framework of how do you interpret the rocks. All right? Okay. So traces of the past. So a historical fact uh, or data, data are traces left by an event. That's data. That's historical data. A historical fact takes that data and interprets it, whether it's Abraham Lincoln or the geological column or whatever interpretation is involved. Here is where we differ, is in the interpretation. We're looking at the same data. We're not manipulating the data. We're looking at the same data, but we have a framework to look at that data, and we come to a different conclusion. All right, so that's her hermeneutics and exegesis. Let me discuss specifically uniformitarianism. It's the concept that the, the present is the key to the past. In other words, nature is consistent and it's always been that way. What you observe today has never been different. And you might look up, we don't have time to do it, but Second Peter 3, the essence of Peter's argument there is that uniformitarianism is not a valid concept. And I can demonstrate that from Scripture as well. The fundamental assumption that the key or the present is the key to the past. Fundamental assumption. First of all, scientifically, you can't verify it. All you can do is to come up with some assumptions. It's an assumption. You can't verify it. You can't go back, right? You can't verify it. You can't verify that everything has always been that way. That's what Pete, that's what the the, the uh, the skeptic, what does Peter describe him as the, uh, what's the word Peter uses there? Scoffers. The scoffers, you know, they're saying there's no second coming. That's too radical. That's too transformative. Everything is always, you know, everything's going on as it's always been. Is basically a summary of what, what the scoffer is saying. And Peter gives two radical things that God introduced to undermine uniformitarianism. It's almost like Peter is writing in the 21st century. And he says, you overlook the creative event. That is totally transformative. It's different. Now, he doesn't include the fall, but we know that if you study Genesis 3, the fall, everything in the universe after the fall is radically different than before the fall. With sin, the universe was affected. And personally, I believe the second law of thermodynamics was turned on at the fall, part of the judgment of God. So the laws of science before the fall were radically different than the laws of science after the fall. And he also uses the Genesis flood. And you can see from the text, people lived 900 years, something was different. Environmentally, things were different before the flood than after the flood. And there's a lot of other details. Climatology was different. Geology was different. The whole geological face, surface of the earth is transformed by the flood. And Peter says that world perished. 
We're living in a different world. We are living in a stable environment based on the Noahic covenant. The Noahic covenant is God legally binding himself to create an environment such that there will never be a flood again. And in order to do that, he has to, he has to control the, the orbits of the moon. For one example, if the moon came closer to the earth, what would happen? And it didn't, doesn't take much. Tides would be so high that waters would overshadow the continents. And there's a lot of other parameters. So he has to control all of the physical parameters. The Noahic Covenant is dealing primarily with nature because the environment before the flood is radically different than the... Okay, so uniformitarianism just doesn't hold water. That's why it goes against Scripture. So if you exclude Scripture, you don't have any data to help you interpret that whole phenomenon of uniformitarianism. This is a fundamental error that all old earth creationists uh, have to deal with, and I, I think most of them are just totally unaware of that. So there's the problem of history, if you've seen the movie. <laughs> you can't go back to the future. Right? <clears throat> you can't reconstruct historical events, or you, you can't go back to historical events. The best you can do is try based on your assumptions, to reconstruct what happened in the past. Our difference is with the uh, interpretation of the data. So if you start out with an evolutionary framework, and you already are assuming long ages, then when you observe the data, you're going to come up with an interpretation that the Earth must be relatively old. If you start with a biblical framework, and God as creator, and a Genesis flood... Because you have added data, you now have revelation. And if you believe that that revelation is inspired and inerrant, that adds to the data you have available to make your conclusions, and that was, is going to drive you to, I believe, a relatively young earth conclusion. See what we're talking about here? Okay. Another problem with the old earth, the old earth views or Old Earth View, uses science as the driver. Science becomes the final authority in terms of coming to conclusions. And if science is the final authority, you have to twist the scriptures to fit. That's accommodation. That's what we're talking about here. The Young Earth View starts with scripture as the final authority because it's revelation, it's inspired, it's inerrant, and now we have a framework to do good science. And you can fit good science into that framework. See the difference? Okay. How do you come to truth? Well, <clears throat> science is probably the best means that man has come up with. I'm not denigrating science. I have a high view of science. That's my background. I love science. But realistically, science changes over time. You get more data, you change your theories. It's incomplete. It is ongoing. It keeps going on. It's ongoing. Maybe we might make some observations that changes our views, changes some of our theories. It's partial. Is any scientist uh, omniscient? He only has partial data, very limited. It's tentative. If you come up with data that contradicts a theory, you change a theory. All right? It's imperfect. Done by, and here's the kicker, any scientist, perfect? 
Any science without sin? Any scientist without biases? No. Every scientist is just as depraved as everybody else. Just because he puts on a white coat doesn't automatically eliminate all of his human frailties. That's where science comes. It's the best means we've come up with as human beings. But Scripture, how do you view Scripture? Well, Scripture is unchanging. It's perfect. And I can give you verses for all these. It's complete. The canon is complete. Free from imperfection. It's unlimited. It's eternal. Scripture is absolute truth. That's the definition of absolute truth. Our culture, relativistic culture, denies the existence of absolute truth. If you believe the Bible, the Bible's uh, And I could expand this. I've got a half hour's lecture on this thing here. I put it all on one slide because I didn't want to take a, a half an hour. Okay. It's eternal. It's ultimate reality. It comes from an omniscient source. So we want to put our authority in that rather than depraved men. All right? So that's the problem of accommodation. Got that? Now let's, in the time that's remaining, I'm going to have to summarize quite a bit here, and I'm not even going to get to the end here, but let's let's summarize the scientific evidence, and I'll probably skip over a lot of the slides here. We can skip over this one. We already did this at the beginning. The available data, physical evidence, documentary evidence that is excluded by the naturalist. We have it. We have more data than they do. So we're in a better position to make a conclusion. We have more data and more reliable data. There was nobody there, no one in his family, when the flood took place. There was nobody there when he created in the first five days. And Adam and Eve are created after, so they, weren't, they don't know what happened other than what God reveals to them. We have documentary evidence. Uh, that's revelation evidence. Revelation evidence. And Russ Humphreys says that the old earth view, there's only 10% of the scientific evidence that supports a relatively old earth. Uh, I wanted to get to that. I don't, I'm positive we won't get that far. But that 10%, I dealt with part of that area is the geological record. I did that in that talk, so just kind of ahead of time. Uh, I hope I dealt with that, where the enti- virtually the entire geological column down to the Cambrian layer was laid down by the Genesis flood, eliminating millions of years of dating. So we dealt with that. Pardon me? Um, he's got little sheets that he's handed out in some of his lectures. But I'll refer to him again. 10%, and and he's done a lot of work in this area, of scientific study on the age of the earth. So all of you uh, mathematicians, what does that leave for evidence for scientific, or scientific evidence for young earth? All right. You anticipated this slide, 90%. You don't hear about this. All you hear about in the media are the 90%. And by the way, geological column is one, radiometric dating, there's all kinds of problems with it. The third major area that they use is starlight and time. Russ Humphreys has written a book, Starlight and Time, where he answers that issue, or at least proposes a a solution for a young earth argument there. Well, 
I've got these, and, and the red ones I was going to kind of highlight, but let me just make a few comments on them. And I just want you to know, what, what I, these, these series of slides are designed to show you that there's overwhelming scientific evidence for a relatively young Earth. And this is from uh, CMI. Uh, I got these slides from a guy by the name, a uh, fellow from the Creation Science Fellowship named Terry Harden but he got them from CMI, so I'm giving both of them credit there. Uh, but they list 101 evidence. These aren't all of them. In fact, I've got another one, so you could add another one. I'll show you in a moment. We'll go through it quickly, though. Uh, there's biological evidence, and you might even say some of these are microbiological. When you talk about DNA, you're talking at the microbiological level. And I was going to talk about uh, DNA and supposed ancient fossils, Skip down, uh, well, you also, a fundamental principle of, of genetics is decay, not only in the human gen genome, but decay in virtually all creatures. In other words, it's degrading the human genome as well as animal genome, degrade over time. All geneticists will accept this, which indicates that at one time, instead of evolution, you have the very opposite of evolution which argues, there's arguments there that you can tie to a young earth as well. Uh, a problem number seven, in fact, I've got a, a whole series of very technical microbiological and certainly biological articles on kind of this new data that has been discovered in the last, I think, 20 or so years. And they're finding it, it all over the place where uh, we, they're actual blood vessels and blood cells and protein in partially fossilized dinosaur fossils. Uh, a woman discovered this. She took a lot of flack, but her data was good. This is a major problem. Dinosaurs, according to the old age view, are in the Jurassic period 65 million years ago. And any microbiologist would tell you DNA does not last, nor do, nor do soft tissues last 65 billion years. In fact, it's amazing that uh, they would even last a few thousand years, but apparently they have found dinosaur bones with blood vessels, DNA, as well as DNA in other ancient fossils as well. This is cutting-edge science. So the 65 million years, that, that, that's a problem. Uh, how could these dinosaurs, and that's the old earth chronology, and the typical, obviously, evolutionary chronology. So this is, this is a cutting edge. And I've got 11 of these other 101 evidences here. Okay, we're getting close here. Here's 12 to 19. I gave you polystrate fossils. These are geological evidences and also paleontology evidences. Uh, when I did the kids thing, I talked about polystrate fossils in support of the Genesis flood as evidence for a universal flood. I was going to expand on that. And here's just uh, from 20 to 20, more geological evidences. By the way, all this will be... Uh, they're going to record the audio 
I'm going to encourage them to record the video as well, or not video, but uh, the slides, and I, I can supply the slides for them. So if you, we'll look at these very rapidly. So I got to go quickly here. More geological evidences, uh, some specifics. I was going to kind of highlight the amount of salt in the oceans, the amount of sediment in floors argues for a relatively young Earth. And I've just got some sketches here to kind of explain that. Uh, all the salt in the ocean would accumulate in a maximum of 62 million years. That's using the uh, uh, uniformitarian assumption that they use. So let's use their assumption. And using their assumption, you come up with 62 million years. You might say, well, doesn't that kind of support the old Earth? Well, they're talking about billions of years. And if uniformitarianism doesn't work, and if there was a Genesis flood, that throws everything else off. All right, so that's a maximum. And similarly, uh, there's another maximum there. These are all maximums. So when you have all of these so-called clocks, the one with the lowest maximum drives because that is a maximum. So it overshadows these others. So these others are less than, obviously. And if you have one that's less than, much lower, then that one takes precedence. All right? And similar ocean sediments, etc. Well, here's some more geological evidence. Radiometric dating. Even radiometric dating supports a relatively young Earth. Uh, I could give you evidence from carbon-14 that is found in coal. Coal also supposedly was formed millions of years ago. You should have no carbon-14 in these lower layers. And by the way, there uh, a man... Here in Albuquerque, he's done some research as well. John Dowdy, I don't know if you know of him, but he's done gas well evaluations, and he is finding uh, carbon-14 in gas wells uh, 15,000 feet below. It's supposedly in, in layers that are millions of years old. You should have no carbon-14 because of the short uh, half-life there. Uh, carbon-14 in diamonds should have no carbon-14 in diamonds. And yet, uh, some research has shown it. More radiometric dating there. There's astronomical evidence. So we're just going down the list, 65 to 71 here. And some of these I'm not even familiar with, but just want you to know there's evidence out there. And there's articles that discuss some of these on some of the various websites. We're up to 80 already here, 82 more astronomical evidence. Life of near-Earth asteroids, how do you explain that? Uh, i got to move fast. Here's an interesting one. This is not part of the one, 101, so now you have 102. <laughs> and there's others. I mean, the, the, the article that lists these uh, is makes no claim that they're exhaustive. In other words, there's others. They just wanted to show that there's abundance of evidence. Uh, when we started the space program and the research was being done, the assumption was old Earth assumptions and the thinking at that time in designing a module, and you see the kind of the footprint of the module there that landed on the moon. The reason it looks the way it does is they came to the conclusion that they had to account for millions of years of dust that actually falls on the moon. Uh, you're not aware of it, but dust from 
outer space falls on the earth. All, all that dust is washed away by rain and all the processes of earth, but you don't have that kind of atmosphere on the, on the moon. Uh, they were fearful in terms of what kind of a craft do we design, so they designed something that they thought would uh, not sink down into the dust. So they expected from an old earth anticipation 50 to 180 feet of dust if the moon is millions and billions of years old. Well, you know what happened. They only found about a thousand years worth. Just, you know, a little footprint. You, you remember the story. Well, that kind of overturned some of the assumptions. Just another example. Here's one on the age of the atmosphere. Uh, this chart, these are all maximums. So which one drives? All the others are less than. Uh, dissolved silicon in the oceans, 8,000. So that's the driver. That's almost the biblical time frame. And that's assuming no flood, for example, and no uh, radical changes. And, and by the way, I think uniformitarianism only works up to the Genesis flood. And then after that, who knows? All right. More evidence, and there's your 101. Uh, okay. I think we need to break here. We're already five minutes over. Uh, I hope I gave you kind of a glimpse of a few scientific evidences that support a relatively young earth. And I think the Bible overwhelmingly supports that concept. So you have to accommodate the Bible to fit that preconceived old earth idea but you also have to go against a lot of science and you have to explain some of the evidence that I gave you uh, just now. Okay, quick questions before we go in there. Uh, it's going to be question and answer, so if you have more questions, you can have them over there. But any, was it, everything was, was this clear? Okay. Hoffmantown on their website are going to put all of the at least audio and I'm going to encourage them at least for mine because I have used so many slides to include the PowerPoint slides. I'm not sure of that. Well, I've got a website where I've done some of this. I've done the flood thing for sure. Uh, some of that is there. But all of the major websites, uh, ICR, ICR.org, uh, AnswersInGenesis.org, they have all, all this information. Maybe not organized the way I did it, but yeah. And my website is on the, the, the handout there. For His Glory, NM. I've got some creation stuff in there. In fact, I've got a recent debate with an old earth creationist on there. So, for his glory, nm.com. Okay, we have about four minutes to get to the next. Thank you. <laughs>